0: Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Vonheim, and you're listening to The Bin Podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech, and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Lars Tvede is an entrepreneur, investor, and best-selling author. He spent 11 years in portfolio management and investment banking before moving to the tech and telecommunication industries in the mid-90s, where he has been co-founder of several successful companies. In this episode, we discuss why Lars has started a new hedge fund, his biggest lessons in business, how to prepare for luck and randomness, the political landscape, and his best tips for the next generation of founders. Let's start the show.
1: All opinions expressed by Christophe Volnaym or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Bin. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Volnaym as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.
0: Okay, everyone, welcome back. Super excited to have Lars joining the podcast. Lars, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. So when I said you were joining the show, I got a comment on Twitter, and it said that you're the most interesting guy I ever brought on the show. Why do you think that comment arrived, that you're so interesting? How would you describe yourself?
1: Ooh, <laughs> no, I don't know what the, what the rationale is, uh, but I, I'm active in different areas. So I'm a financial investor, and entrepreneur, uh, but I also engage in political debate and has written some books about uh, the future of Western civilization and technology and 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 the political landscape so it could it could come from either of those sides Um,
0: because this interest yeah (laughs) no 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 it's good I, i think maybe it's a good place to start in your childhood and upbringing can you describe what you were interested in was it like you were like a businessman an entrepreneur from the early age or is this something that evolved over time
1: not at all i um my parents were working for the public sector my father was a scientist and my mother uh, when I was young, she was uh, working at home, and then later she took uh, an education as a social advisor. So she was working in a job advisory and refugees and so on. And I had it never crossed my mind at all that I should ever go into the private sector. Uh, none of their friends, except one family, worked in the private sector. What did happen to me was that I had a friend in school who was his, his sister was so much older that he was like a, almost like a lone child and his parents would go to france uh, every year uh, and stay there for quite a long time with an uncle and um, so since he was alone i was asked to join so i went down there and we lived in Paul de amongst in a wine yard And this guy was a businessman, the one who had the the uncle. He was a rich uncle and uh, he had a subscription agreement with Bentley Rolls Royce. So every second year he had a Bentley, every second year he had a Rolls Royce and he always sold them for more than he paid because he kind of skipped the queue. So he said he couldn't afford anything else. But um, all his friends were entrepreneurs and business people. And for me, it was a complete eye-opener every year between 9 and 13 to be in the summer between business people, entrepreneurs, and the rest of the year between people who work for the public sector. And I just uh, realized that I, I thought they had more juice pattern, They had more energy. They had a more positive view of the world. They were more optimistic. They were more fun. I mean, not uh, my, my parents could be fun, but, but I just thought the environment was much more fun there. And then my mind started to change that maybe i should not work in the public sector as a scientist maybe i should go into business and that then later in in high school i met uh, i got a good friend whose father was an entrepreneur and so there again i got introduced to such an environment and and i identified much more with that so that's that's how it changed
0: how random do you feel life is based on that story? Do you actually feel that if it wasn't for that input, you would maybe work in the public sector? Or do you think like in eventually you would figure it out? Or do you think it's, life is a bit random and it's about taking the signals you get in and using them?
1: I think um, how random life is depends on who you are because some people make a very fixed career plan. And stick to it the whole life. Uh, My life on a sort of tactical operational plan has been entirely random. Uh, Nothing has been planned. I have stumbled backwards into everything. I just come across things. I just randomly meet people. I just see things. And then certainly it takes a turn. Um, So I'm I'm giving you a long answer. but So I'm, I'm only in the beginning of this answer now. But I'll give you an example. So at the beginning of this year, uh, 2020, of course, I had no idea that there would be COVID. I had no idea that I would publish a new book, write a new book. I had no idea about that. And I had no idea that I would uh, found a hedge fund. So this all happened because uh, when the COVID, um, <clears throat> the COVID started in, in China, it was something that most people probably read about. That there was this new flu thing in China. Uh, nobody took any notice. Uh, stock markets kept going up. Governments did pretty much nothing. And then on, was it, I think it was on the 24th of February, I wake up in the morning. And I take my phone as, as I normally do. I, I like to work with my phone in bed because my brain wakes up much faster than my body. So um, then I don't need to move my body, but I can still work with my brain. Anyway, so I I open it up and there's an email from Goldman Sachs and another one from an institute called Bank Credit Institute. Both of them have a big study about COVID. And I start reading them and both of them uh, paint a very serious picture of something that people are not taking serious. And uh, at the end of it, I'm... Totally sure that uh, we'll go into a massive recession, that stock markets will crash, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I call my banks and, and ask them to sell absolutely everything. All equities I've had since two thousand and nine, which has been a great run, it's up four hundred percent. So the the markets in that period. So just sell everything, and, and this kind of conversation where they repeat everything. Yes, everything. <laughs> And then I sat down on a road on Facebook that uh, I thought uh, this was going to be very serious and, and I just sold all my equities and, and I explained why this was so serious. And then uh, nothing. I think this was on a Wednesday. And then Thursday, Friday, nothing really happened. We were half a percent from the t- absolute top of the stock market when I sold. But then on the next morning, the markets collapsed, and then they did the fastest uh, collapse since World War II. And then in the middle of that, actually uh, about five trading days after I'd sold my equities, I went short. So I, I sold futures to earn money on some of the downturn. And I wrote that immediately on Facebook. And then as the markets came down, I advised everybody repeatedly to now buy, buy, buy. Uh, this is an excellent opportunity to get in and establish long-term positions. Then um, I'm still explaining the randomness of night, of life. So of course so CoVID was unexpected. Um, then uh, I get a call from a publisher who said I've been following all your trading recommendations and you got it right like every time you every turn, everything you got right. And you've written some quite long complex books about uh, investing don't you want to write a book uh, which is really easy to understand for for normal people about what how, how people like you work and then i uh, dictated that book in 12 days um, and then a friend of mine said last you should start a hedge fund you are really good at, at trading and <laughs> And you've clearly been very good at it for 30 years. So why don't you start a hedge fund? And I said, well, this is a big project. But then he said, we'll set up everything for you. You don't have to do anything until the fund is actually established in Luxembourg with banking partners and so on. We'll set set it up and then you just start trading. So I said, okay. And then the book came out. And then the book became the number one bestseller in Denmark is uh, still today. And it's been almost every day for the last two months, it's been the number one sold book in Denmark. So now I've got uh, 724 people who wrote to me if they couldn't invest in my hedge fund. So going back to your question, here I have with this book and with this fund, and i had no plan it was not planned it was not a part of my plan at all for what i should do this year i had some other plans and by the way um in the summer i was sitting um uh, so i spent because of COVID, i spent four months on a boat that i have in the mediterranean and didn't leave it for four months because it's so you know complicated with traveling and i had guests coming on board off board and then i had uh, five days where i was alone only with the crew and then I sit and uh, with the captain, we have a glass of wine, and we look just for fun at yachts for sale. And then suddenly so, there comes up a fantastic yacht. And I said, uh, his name is Alfonso. I said, Alfonso, this is the kind of boat I like. And then we look, specification. There was incredibly fuel efficient. It was a 40-meter boat. Normally they eat, you know, they eat fuel like crazy. So how can it be so efficient? And then he said, Oh, this is electric parts. it's a fantastic system. And, the best you can have and so on. Then we went further further down and then at the end it said bank owned. Bank owned, <laughs> that means that somebody went bankrupt. And the bank now sits with a wonderful boat and um, you know you can really sometimes negotiate incredible prices with bank owned boats. So instead of going back to Switzerland, we sailed to France where the boat was, got a berth right next to it and then for two weeks i had people crawling all over including myself inside the hull and so on investigating this boat it was in an excellent build boat and then i gave a bid and the bid was low but i got it so so that was another big project and i, I spent something like two man months on it um, and that was not a part of the plan so back to your question i'm sorry this is probably one of the longest answers you ever had to a question Stop laughing, but I think uh, for many people, uh, uh, the tactical things are completely random, but the overall direction is not because you, you, will be, you will have so many things that happen in your life and you're attracted to some and you're not attracted to others. And so what you're attracted to d- depends on your value system, your moral instincts, your personality. So you will always go in in that direction, very focused on the difference between being laser focused and having a radar. So people who who make a very uh, detailed plan for the career, they work with a laser focus and, and people who uh, are more entrepreneurs, they're more like a radar. So they scan everything around them. And then they just grab things they like and they, you know, move away from stuff they don't like. And, the interesting thing is that you probably know there's been a lot of research into uh, happiness. There's even an international happiness database compiling all this research. But I found out that there's, there's also been research into luck. Um, there's a, Especially a scientist called Weisman. he has studied why some people seem to be lucky and some people seem to be particularly unlucky. So he put adverts in, in media Asking people to contact him if they felt that they throughout life had been particularly lucky or particularly unlucky. And then he made a lot of uh, experiments with them. And for instance, one experiment, uh, people have to read a newspaper and he says, you have to read this, in a, Well, you have to flip through this newspaper and tell me how many photos are in it. Um, so they go and um, at the end, somebody says there's 21 photos. But some of them stopped much earlier, and that's because on page one, it says, you can stop right here, there are 21 photos, it says in the headline. And another one says, if you stop here, you will get $1,000 or whatever. So the lucky people were the ones who noticed these things. The unlucky people were only looking for the pictures, so they had laser focus on the pictures, but were not noticing anything else. He also did a study where people had to go into a bar and then he put candid camera, hidden cameras, and then on de- deliberately he would come twenty minutes late for an interview, and then he just noticed what they did in those twenty minutes. So the lucky people they would start uh, talking with other people around them. The unlucky people would just you know sit with their phone or stare at a newspaper or something like that. So it's it's uh, partly it's built into your personality, but it's also a choice whether you want to work with a more with a laser or more with a radar. And it can very well be that people who are more uh, radar people, uh, they need to work with laser people to get stuff done. Uh, because if the more, if you're entirely a radar person, then maybe you don't focus enough. So you need to work with somebody who, who are capable and decide to focus much more.
0: I agree a lot, Lars, uh, just a couple of points you said, A lot of interesting stuff. I mean, the good part is that the answers are fantastic. The bad part is that you're making the host obsolete because I can just ask you one question and go and take a coffee. But uh, I felt one of the points that I really uh, took notice on was the part where you said, yeah, you, you wrote a book on basically 12 days because I think there's a big difference in forcing things in life and just letting it flow. Yeah, just if you take this podcast, for example, we've been running it for four years. I never asked you to come on the show, even though you're Danish, you're well known. But I don't know when we got in touch, maybe last week, because I felt this is the right moment. Lars has a hedge fund, the podcast is big, let's do it. Instead of like using three years of my life forcing you to get on. So sometimes I feel like people are forcing stuff in their life when they really should not be forcing stuff because it should just come naturally. If you mm-hmm. if you have an idea, I want to write a bestseller book, I feel like that's a bad place to start. While you were I have an insight. Let let me put out that insight. And today people want to know that what that insight is, right?
1: Right. Mm. That you can also prepare for that luck. Um So for I get a lot of ideas and one of the things I often do is I have an idea for a a company or service and sometimes I go out and register a domain that would be suitable, so a good name, but I actually don't start the company and the the reason I don't start it is that I talk with people and I explain them uh, what it would would be Um, and if nobody seems to be excited, I can't get anybody who wants to join me in it. Then I just don't do it, and I just have it like uh, on store And I, there's an example in 2009. I wrote a book called Super Trends, and that in that <clears throat> when when I'd finished the book, I thought I would promote it with a list of a hundred things that would happen in the future. And then I was flipping through this quite big book, and even though it was a big book full of details, it was a bit of a struggle for me to find a hundred exact precisely described events in the future. I did, I mean, I I to do it, but then I thought something wrong here because I'm writing about the future and there will be thousands of significant events in the future, even in in the, you know, the likely rest of my life. And I actually don't know what they are. Um, And nobody knows what they are. In order to know what all these significant events are, we have to go out and ask, thousands of experts who work on nuclear fusion and cultured meat and all the rest of it um, and ask them what are the significant events that will happen within what you work on and when do you think it will happen and what is it and which impact will it have so there in 2009 i had that idea i i I bought the name supertrends.com from an evil squatter (laughs) overpaying a lot and then um, i i i described the idea of making a service where we would compile all this information from experts. Nobody really got enthusiastic. Then um, a year and a half ago, I I talked about it again. And then suddenly there was somebody who was enthusiastic. And then we started uh, sitting in different uh, work group with teams of students and others and to create a business case for it and to outline how it should be. And then we thought, okay, we need to code this. And the first one we could think of is a Danish guy that lives in Switzerland who has a software company called Twyfork. So I wrote to him the short description and said, we'd like to do this. Uh, would you, could you meet and give an offer for coding the thing? Then we meet him and then he said, um, yeah, I can do this or we can do this. On one condition, I want to be your 50-50 partner. I said, why? And then he said, because we have conferences about technology every year. And what we do when people go for lunch or for dinner, is we put a whiteboard and then we draw uh, with a marker, a timeline. And then we write a question like when will quantum computing be able to mine all bitcoins or something like that. And then people take magnets and put them on the timeline. And so what you described is a uh, software uh, crowdsourcing tool to do the same. And since we've, done, we've been doing this um, in a very primitive way for 10 years, it's right down our alley, and that's why we want to be your partner. So certainly there's somebody who's enthusiastic, and now we're putting a lot of muscle into this project and are very proud with it. So um, I think I if think... we can
0: add one thing, Lars, I think because we have so many uh, papers about what makes a startup succeed and is it founders, is it market, is it product, but yeah. really the timing, I don't know how much the percentage you feel timing is key in a startup or a project, but at least in my experience, like the timing is super hard to calculate. And maybe the, the thing you're talking about here, do people really, are they enthusiastic about it could be one part of figuring out the timing question.
1: Yeah, so um, the, the timing that i describe described here is not a timing where it had to be uh, last year. Um, there's no technological reason or market reason why it had to be last year or, or why it shouldn't have been 10 years ago. This was timing because certainly there were the right people who were interest, interested. But in, in, uh, in a lot of business Timing is about predicting when some uh, technologies will reach a certain stage and at the same time, so we can merge them into something new. So uh, in, in the book, Super Trends, there are a lot of examples of, of laws similar to Moore's law. For instance, there's Heidt's law about the efficiency of LED light. There's a law about um, the efficiency of nuclear fusion which has been following a Moore's law uh, since the 1970s and is only about five years away from from sustainable ignition right now which is interesting
0: how's the battery in the tesla and stuff those yeah, batteries? Yeah. So, so the
1: tesla thing was clearly an example where you see that the batteries follow an exponential efficiency curve and you can just calculate you could Uh, Elon Musk could calculate that they were approaching rapidly a point where it would be economically and technically feasible to make electric cars. And it's like ski shooting. Somebody, uh, the machine throws up a a ski and you have to shoot it in the air. But in order to hit it, you actually have to aim ahead of it. And so if you, um, you can see this core technologies following uh, typically exponential curves, then you can calculate the point where it makes sense to make popular applications. And then very often the, the great businesses are not about the core technologies, it's about the applications on top of the core technologies. And one of the big um, problems, which is also an opportunity I see is that, Many of the people who create the core technologies are not good at seeing the applications. Some examples, when the radio was invented, at first people thought it was a suitable tool for reading aloud books. (laughs) So all the other things you could do on radio only came later. When television was invented, a lot of people thought this was for theater pieces that you could watch on the screen at home so you you took applications from a different core technology if you wish uh, if, if you will and 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 imagine these are new to core technologies so the people who are good at developing technology are typically uh, they have another mindset than the people who can make the applications for it, 100%.
0: Uh,
1: it takes another mindset to to create the core technology of radio and television transmission and the receivers and the mindset to make a talk show i mean these such such people could never swap job that's completely different
0: but so but also sometimes i feel like some of the biggest innovation let's call it the railroads like the internet for instance if it's publicly funded, you wouldn't expect public people to build applications. You would sort of expect entrepreneurs to get this great technology and then build something on top of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why, I mean, now we, we're getting close to politics, but I think um, when states run services, they should think of it as open platforms, a bit like, you know, um, um, on on a smartphone that you have an open platform for apps. So an app store. So you make the you may set some rules and you ensure that everybody can compete on fair terms, and then you you enable lots and lots of actors to make the applications. And you can do this in healthcare. That's how pretty much how healthcare works in Switzerland, where I live. You can certainly also do it in education with charter schools and and um, commercial schools and all kinds of schools, and then everybody experiment and. And then you get creativity.
0: It's also the same uh, big idea behind Bitcoin and blockchain. You create a set of rules and you Mm. program consensus-based stuff and then people Mm. can build on top of it. So it's super interesting. But how do you like to spot trends? You talked about reading a Goldman Sachs report, but I don't think your trends are based on Goldman Sachs analytics. So how do you like... If you're looking for trends, is it just serendipity in your end? You're reading newspapers, science science articles, or do you have a specific pattern or method you use to see the future?
1: Well, uh, newspapers to me is not a very useful time just for spotting trends. Um, actually, um, I Goldman Sachs is one of the inputs I do value. Um, so on average, uh, throughout... The last decades, I've been reading um, about three hours a day. Sometimes it's a lot more than three hours, but there are also days where it's a lot less. But on average, I think it's three hours. And I always thought that I need to spend those three hours as wisely as I can. And that means I want to read the best material I can find in the world. And I find that a lot of that actually comes from the top banks, uh, especially top investment banks, so JP... JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, uh, Citibank, some of them are commercial and investment bank, Goldman Sachs, etc. And from private uh, research companies like Alpine and uh, bank credit analysts that you have to pay for. And so they, they have top top analyst people with iq 140 to 155 plus you know mensa they they have they make a cut at 155 you don't know uh, if you get a certificate from MENSAT, it just says you are 155 but anyway it's these kind of people they make this this kind of research it's incredibly high caliber i read it and i i i have the attitude that uh, in in terms of analyzing what what goes on and, and is likely to go on in the world i don't have to come up with any ideas at all of my own so i do come up with ideas and insights on my own but i don't have to because if i listen to the smartest guys in the world and goes, um that that will give me the excellent input
0: i agree uh, maybe that's a good uh segue over to the last part because there's a lot of people listening that are maybe in the age between 20 to 35 with a lot of talent and a lot of grit and of course everyone wants you to say what should they do to have the success you have but you can't generalize that type of stuff because it's your own journey and you have to do it on your own but what are some of the inputs you give if friends or people ask you Lars do you have any advice I'm a bit stuck in a career at or whatever
1: yeah, the, what, there's one thing I would always say, and I've said it many times to, uh, in media, but also to people uh, privately, and that is to test yourself. You can go on the internet and you can take personality tests uh, for free, and there are many of them, and they're very good. Um, I, I, I realized that about uh, um, more than 10 years ago when I was I was writing a book called The Psychology of Finance. So of course I was reading a lot about books about psychology, and then I uh, started testing myself to just as a part of my studies. And some of the tests they came out with recommendations for what I should do in life, and these recommendations were very close to what I actually had found out, you know, the hard way. Um, I think if you have a very good understanding of who you are. And then you also will understand much better why you fail in some situations and succeed in others. You will be much more conscious about what way you should, should go. So, uh, of all the things you can do to improve your life, I think this would be one of the best investments in terms of time. Doesn't need to cost any money at all. Some tests do cost money, but many are for free. Um, do some three, four, five tests or more, and then think about it and think about: Am I living? <laughs> am I at am I the right place considering who I am?
0: I think one myth is that a great person like yourself or Ray Daly or Mats Forholt, you just expect them to deliver in every position because they're smart. But I've seen some people being misplaced in the workplace and performing terrible. So it's mm. just about you have to play on the right field. And maybe this is a great way to understand what is your field.
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly, there are many people who have enormous potential uh, somewhere else. (laughs) They're they're just the wrong place. Yeah, there's a lot of them.
0: I agree. So last question, what can people do for you if they want to connect or help you in your adventures? How can they, (laughs) besides going to Switzerland and ski with you, what are you looking for in people you hire and you work with? Is it finding those win-win opportunities? Yeah,
1: so I don't like to have people working directly for me. So I have um, I have stakes in about 26 uh, startups directly or indirectly, uh, uh, and now I have this uh, venture fund. I run the super trends companies and uh, so on. But they're not work. Nobody nobody reports to me uh, because I don't like to be a people manager, and that's one of the things that was confirmed from. From these personality tests, but uh, connect with me on social media, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Facebook, Uh, follow me. And if you have something that you think we could do together, write to me Um, and then uh, might not have time to respond to everything right away, especially not the last two weeks. But (laughs) typically I do find time to come back or I can say it's not this is not for me but somebody else i do not now invest in startup companies because i already have so much
0: and last piece what book do you recommend for them to read you've written many yourself do you have any best book recommendation that is perfect in 2020
1: I, 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 I have to tell you, I'm going to uh, recommend my own books because I try to make them the best. Uh, <laughs> if you're interested in 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 Western civilization, society, politics, I would recommend The Creative Society. If you're interested in, in general economics and business cycles, I would recommend my book called Business Cycles, which is the best-selling book on business cycles in the world for the last 30 years, I think. As far as I can see on Amazon, um, those would be my two recommendations. I have a lot of other books about different uh, aspects that I did not write. Oh yeah, there's one book. If you're if you're interested in, in in the stickiness of culture, then you should read a super fascinating book called Black Rednecks White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. It's amazing. It's seven stories about culture and. Uh, and history
0: and also probably if Lars only uses 12 days to write a book there's more coming i expect
1: yeah there's uh there's one that i'm thinking about with a mckinsey partner uh, which is about uh, running companies in a world where technology is evolving so quickly that
0: might happen thank you so much for taking the time Lars it was awesome it was a pleasure Take care. Hi, everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Woonheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.